Well, this morning we are going to start off with everyone's favorite uh, morning exercise, a little personal introspection. How many of you just love to get up in the morning and just ask hard questions about yourself, right? Everyone's, no one's making eye contact, so I'm assuming no one likes that. Well, this morning, just relax a little bit. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you to answer a, a question that actually is an important uh, question, but you don't have to share with your neighbor. For some of you, the answer will be a little too personal to share with the person next to you, and so some of you now are getting really, uh, really nervous about this. So, so here's the question. Just relax, okay? Here's the question. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Like if you know that you could just willpower and that it would come to pass or if you have, you know, magic wand and this could happen or if you, you know, could involve yourself in some type of discipline or program or, you know, whatever personal growth exercise. But if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Now, for some of you, you don't have to wonder a whole lot because you've asked that question and answered it in your own mind a thousand times. You know exactly what it would be. It has become the obsession of your life. If I could just... Fill in the blank, change this, I, you know, then that, that's exactly what it means. You don't, you don't have to wonder. For some of you, it's not one thing. It, it's a list. And you, you've got, you just start clicking off the things, all this, you know, I think about that a lot. I would love to change that and those kinds of things. And so if you uh, grew up or are married to or work for a super critical person, uh, you probably don't have one thing because they told you lots of things. You should be changing. And so for some of you, it's not one thing. It's a list that you've been working on because someone else told you to work on those kinds of things. What would you change about yourself if you could? Now, some of you are not sure. Like you thought, you thought, thought, and you think, well, there's not anything I would change. Here's what you need to change. Your narcissism, your pride, all right? Right? It's like there's nothing to change. I'm nothing here. I, I, uh, it's always a joy to me when I'm going to counsel a couple who's walking through a difficult season in their marriage, and one of them comes in and just kind of proclaims and lays the foundation. Now, I'm not, I don't need to change. I'm just here to support the change they need to do. That's why I'm here. Those are fun, fun sessions, right? What would you change about yourself if you could? Now, here's the deal. I, I don't know everyone's answer. But 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 I can guess one of three categories that your answer is going to fall on. So if I can just gauge a little prophecy this morning, okay? And so whatever your answer was, uh, it, it probably fell in one of three categories. Category number one uh, would be a change in appearance. Like I wish I were taller, smaller, bigger, brown, or you know, uh, brunette or blonde. You know, I wish you know, what, what, just fill in the blank. Like if I could have some kind of change in appearance. I've thought about this a lot, and so this is what I would change from an appearance perspective. And so lots of people's answers would fall in that category. But listen, that's where mine falls. I wish I were less muscular. Like, I could just buy clothes off the rack, right? But for some of you, it's a change in appearance. For some of you, it's not a change in appearance. Yeah, there may be some things, but your primary thing, if you could change one thing, wouldn't be a change in appearance. It would be a change in your situation. Like if I just had a different house or a different spouse or a better job or a degree from there or different situation, if I lived, you know, all those kinds of things, you would have some kind of change in your situation. And so, but, but if you're not careful, there's nothing wrong with wanting to better yourself and work hard and achieve and all those kinds of things. But if you're not careful, those things can become idols in, in our life and consume us and it grows discontent and all those kinds of things. So some of you would be a change in appearance. For some of you, it would be a change uh, in situation. Like if you just change your situation, you would absolutely do that. But the third category is this, and, and this is my experience uh, in, in talking to folks. The third category is this, that very few folks change. Change of character. Like, like if I could just be more forgiving 
If I could be more generous or less materialistic or more compassionate or less critical or worry less or more teach or more humble, if I could change that, then that's exactly uh, what I would change. And, and the reality is very few people's answer, mine included, fall in that category. Many of you are familiar with the ministry of Joni and Friends, led by Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, she was involved in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. But instead of letting her disability uh, become a limitation, she viewed it as an opportunity uh, to minister for the glory of God. And so God's used her all, literally, all over the world to minister to people. She has an incredible ministry to those uh, who are disabled. And so uh, and I was reading an interview with her, and they said this. Uh, they said, I bet you can't wait to get to heaven. Because finally, after not walking for decades, I bet you can't wait to get to heaven and get your new body and finally experience the change of glory and walk again. I bet, I bet you would love to change that. Here's, here's what she said. She said, I can't lie. I am somewhat excited about that. She said, but what gets me most excited about heaven is God finally completing his work in me where I never have to sin against him. Listen, if I were the interviewer, I would have dropped the mic and walked off, right? Like, like, here's a person who hasn't walked in decades, quadriplegic, saying, you know what, the greatest excitement and hope for glory and change is not that I'll walk again. And yes, I'm excited, but my greatest excitement about heaven is that God will finally complete his work of change in me where I no longer have to sin against my father. I read an interview. She spoke at a conference at John MacArthur's church this past year, and I came across this little interview excerpt. And she said, uh, when people come up to me, Christians, uh, mostly of, of charismatic persuasion, they always want to pray for my healing. And she said, they're quite bold to come up and ask if they might do so. So I never, never say no. And she said, if you want to pray for my healing, bring it on. But she said, but then I say to them, while you're praying for my healing, may I give you some specifics about which I really need healing in in my life? And they, they say, absolutely. She said, would you please ask God to get rid of my peevish attitude in the morning when I wake up? I need to be healed of that. She said, would you uh, please pray that God would heal me from such a sour disposition when there's too much work on my desk? And, you know, I'm really a workaholic. So would you please pray that God would finally heal me about that? Wow. If you have a Bible this morning, let me invite you to take and turn to Romans chapter 12 for a new series. We're starting this morning called Transform Then and Now. Transform. The reality is everyone in this room in some fashion or another, another needs to be healed. We need to experience a change in our lives. We need God to take the broken things and put them back together for his glory and for his good. And so we all desperately need to be transformed. And so that for the next several weeks, we're going to walk through a section of Romans, uh, chapters 12 and, and all the way to the end of the book. And we're going to talk about this idea that, that God, when God saves us, he also changes us. And so many times when you get in the book of Romans, it makes people nervous. And there's a lot of deep theology in there. And so they think the book is so complicated. Uh, but anytime we start a new verse by verse series, I always want to set the context so that we can build on the right foundation. So let me just tell you uh, the book of Romans. It's some very simple ways to remember how the book of Romans fits together and then why uh, we're going at the end and how what's led up to that point. So book of Romans basically is in five divisions. Uh, they all start with S, and so you know some preacher came up with an alliterated outline, right? But they all start with S, and so let me just walk you through these so you see the book of Romans actually isn't complicated at all. The first three chapters deal with sin. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, over and over and over, okay? So chapters 1 through 3 deal with sin. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with salvation. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 deal with sanctification. Chapters 9 through 11 deal with sovereignty, and chapters 12 through 16 deal with service. All right, let's walk through that again really quick. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, sin. 
4 and 5, salvation. 6 through 8, sanctification. 9 through 11, sovereignty. 12 through 16 is service. He said, it's too much to remember. Let me give you a twofold division. Chapters 1 through 11, doctrinal. Chapters 12 through 16, practical. And so we're, I just tell that to tell this because we're going to start off in chapter 12 and he's been telling all these things of what God has done, how God saves people, how God pursues people. And so as a result of all that God has done in your life, your life should be transformed. That in these areas, not all areas he's going to cover, but in these areas, chapter 12 through 16, this is what you should do as a result of what God's done for you. Chapters 1 through 11. This is how your life should look different by the fact that God saved you. Chapters 4 and 5. When he found you totally in the pit. Chapters 1 through 3. And God wants to change you. Chapters 6 through 8. And so the transform then and now. is the title of the series uh, that we're beginning here uh, this morning. And so, so here's the question. So, so, so what does that look like? Like, I understand where God found me. I'm so grateful. I understand that Christ alone saves me, chapters 4 and 5. I understand the whole purpose of saving me is to transform me into the image of Jesus Christ, chapters 6 through 8. But what does that look like, chapters 12 through 16, and how does that happen? Practically speaking, outside just gritting my teeth and praying uh, a little harder. So that's a great question. So we're going to begin to answer that this morning and kind of a two-part message this morning. And the title of the message uh, is simply Altar Call. That when we look at altar call from God's perspective, that's a term in our culture, uh, but from God's perspective, an altar call is actually found in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 this morning. So we're just going to look at two verses this morning. I'm going to read two verses. I'm only going to teach through one of them. And so some of you are thinking, we're going to get out early, all right? Probably not, okay? And so we're just going to look at chapter 1. So even though we're only looking at two verses, hear me this morning. These are two of the single most important verses in the New Testament for a Christ follower. They're, they're that important. If you're not familiar with these, it's going to be great for you. If you are familiar with them, I hope to encourage you and challenge you to, you know, what that looks like. And so this is only two verses, but they're incredibly, incredibly important in what it looks like to live transformed for the glory of God. All right. Romans chapter 12. Again, just looking at verses one and two this morning. Paul's writing here, the Holy Spirit speaking through him, through inspiration. So he hears his words. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what that is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so, so in this passage, you can have titled this altar call because when, when God looks at us and God says, hey, this is my expectation. He lays out his expectation for every Christ follower. So this is for every person who names the name of Christ. He says the result of all that God has done for you, chapters 1 through 11, this is what your life should look like. This is the only uh, appropriate response, chapter 12, verse 1, to everything that he did for us, chapters 1 through 11, that you would lay your life on the altar of God. And so, so this morning, I just want to make one point and just flesh it out a little bit uh, this morning. And the simple point is this, and this will be a kind of a common statement, but when we break it down, hopefully you'll see how it actually works, because here's my experience. We know the concept of surrender. So like when I talk about that, we, we hear that in church. Well, that's something we've heard taught and preached, and we know that's, a, you know, we under, but we don't actually know what's required to make that happen and to continue to make that happen, which we'll look at next week. So, so here's the only point I want you to understand this morning is simply this. We come to the place, real change happens when we come to the place of complete Surrender. Complete, total surrender. There is a fundamental difference 
between the person who wants to go to heaven and have their sins forgiven. You know, in all my years of doing this, the last 14 years, I've never met a single person who did not want to go to heaven. Like, not, not one. And so, but there is a fundamental difference between the person who wants to go to heaven and the person whose life is actually transformed radically for the glory of God. And what we've called, we've looked at those people whose lives are radically transformed and we've called them fanatics and we've called them zealous. But the reality is there's only one word in scripture used to describe those people and it's used over and over. It's a disciple. It's a disciple. And so it's a disciple is a person who comes to that place of complete and total surrender where you finally come to the place and recognize that your Christian life is not dependent on what you get from God, but rather it's dependent on what you give to Him. And so many times I overhear people having conversations like, well, I can't wait to hear what God has for me at church. I can't wait to hear what God has for me in my life. I can't wait to hear the good word from God, what God has for me. Listen, the Christian life is not about what God has for you. Listen, God's already given you enough in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Like, that's enough. If that's all he ever did, you would stand back and worship him in glory. But the key is not what am I going to get from God, like he's some kind of cosmic vending machine. The key to Christian life is what are you going to give back to God? And we call that giving back to God. We call that uh, surrender. Laying our lives on the altar of God. Now, unfortunately, for some folks, the word altar call it has a negative uh, connotation, right? Like, like, let's just be honest this morning. How many of you have ever sat in a church service where the altar call went on way too long? Anybody ever experienced that? Right? Yeah. Some of you, some of you are looking down like you're still paying like, yes, yes. And listen, it didn't go on forever and ever because the spirit of God was moving. It was because whoever was preaching needed to feel better about themselves. Can we just be honest? And so just keep coming because someone's going to come down today. I remember Tosh and I visiting a church, true story, Tosh and I visiting a church with her brother. We're sitting up in the balcony, and the altar call is just going on and on and on and on. And listen, I'm praying for a sacrificial lamb, right? Just someone, go forward and confess something. And just on and on. So finally the pastor gets a little exasperated, starts naming sins. And I kid you not, true story, at one point in time, I'm just kind of looking down, kind of zoned out, and I hear these words, come on, men. You know some of you got dirty magazines out in the garage. And two guys got up and went down front. I bet that was a fun ride home to lunch, right? True story. And we're not, listen, we have a time response at the end of it. We may not stand up and sing, but we have a time response for people to receive Christ every week. Altar call is not, not biblical, but it's not wrong. It's been in the 1820s by a guy named Charles Finney. So listen, it's not good or bad. But when you come to the altar call from a biblical perspective, where do you find that? In Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is the altar call from God's perspective. When you come to the place, not about sitting there and praying or walking forward, you come to the place to God, no matter where I'm at geographically in the building, you have all of my life. Everything that I have is in your hands. And so here's the question. We know that concept. We, 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 listen, if you've been in church, you understand that concept. But what is actually happens? What does that look like? Practically, how does that actually happen uh, on a practical basis? And so we're going to break down uh, verse one. We're just going to look at verse one, because listen, the answer Hear me this morning. The answer is always in the text. That's why we preach the text. That's why we break the text down. The answer is always in the text. And so this morning, I'm going to find out that practically speaking, total surrender happens when, first off, we understand the motive. 
we understand the motive. This is not just filler, okay? This is incredibly important. This is the foundation. Total surrender happens when we understand the motive. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, 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 now here's what's interesting. He's talking to Christians. Did you get that? I beseech you who? Brethren. These are not, sometimes we say, well, they're not surrendered, they're not really saved. Listen, he's talking to Christians. He makes it clear from the context here, right off the bat. That's why every word in the text is important. I beseech you, brethren, what's he going to say here? Okay. Uh, therefore, by the mercies of God. So, so he says, therefore. Now, you've heard me say this one so many times. I hope you can repeat it. Maybe you're bored by it, but I want you to own it and understand it. Listen, anytime you come to the word therefore in Scripture, you have to ask a very simple question. What's it there for? Like, like, what's it connecting? And here's the reality. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, he's connecting this new section, Romans chapter 12, back to everything he just taught in Romans chapters 1 through 11. God found you. God sought you. You didn't seek God. God saved you. God's grace transforms you. Listen, all this. He said, listen, so as a result of that, therefore... In light of everything that God did for you, in light of everything that God drew you to himself when he didn't have to, therefore, as a result of all of those things, live this way, Romans chapter 12 through 16. And so the, the response of therefore is it's connecting it back. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 36 uh, is, says this, For him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's how kind of chapter 11 wraps up. And so he says, it's a fact where your life is about the glory of God. As a fact and as an overflow of that, therefore, if you believe that, if you really realize what God's done for you all these chapters, therefore, live this way in these areas. Think this way. Respond this way out of what God's done for you in gratitude. And so as with all the fact that God saved you, this is what your life should look like. Now, now here's, the, here's the foundation. The motive is crucial. The motive is crucial. Listen, it's not therefore in a begrudging kind of sense. Like we just kind of listen. Everyone in the room has done things they don't want to do because someone else pressured them to do it. Right. Everybody in the room has experienced that. Well, I guess I'll go and I get, you know, I guess I'll do it. Or they always love like work in the nursery, like, you know, work in the nursery. Well, I guess if no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. Listen, that's who I want teaching my kids. Amen. We've all done things because of pressure we didn't want to do. And so he's not saying, listen, well, I guess after what God did for me, I, I mean, I guess the least I can do is go to church or you know, give some money or serve. Or, you know, so, so like, no, no, no. He says, listen, that's not the motive at all. That's not the motive at all. And far too long, the church has gotten the motivation part wrong. We've used guilt and shame and legalism and just get piling it on people and so people do things and when they do it it's a response to guilt not as a response of worship and so whatever they do is not glorifying the lord because the motive is totally wrong and so what he says for therefore in chapter 12 verse 1 he's saying hey listen the place your heart should be in living totally surrendered and transformed for the lord is out of humble gratitude out of everything that he's done for you romans chapter 1 through chapter 11. It's a proper response. And when you get a hold of that, when you look back and say, everything that God has done for me, you can't stop that person from serving. You can't stop that person from surrendering, not because of guilt, but because of gratitude. Years ago, uh, Captain Shaw, who was a medical missionary with a Salvation Army in India, true story, uh, visited a leper colony. 
uh, that his mission was, was taking over to minister this leper colony. He saw three men with shackles on their hands and feet, cutting into their diseased flesh. And Captain Shaw's eyes brimmed with tears, and so he told the guard, please, unfasten these chains. And the guard replied, it, it isn't safe. These men are dangerous criminals as well as lepers. And so Shaw said, I'll be responsible for them. They've suffered enough. And so after the shackles were removed, he tenderly treated the men's bleeding wrists and ankles. And so about two weeks later, though, his commitment got put to the test because he had his first misgivings about these criminals running free. He had to make an overnight trip and he had to leave his wife and children alone without his protection. And his wife insisted. She said, I'm not afraid. God is there. God provides. God protects. And so the next morning she went to the front door and was startled to see the three former criminals laying on the steps. And one explained, we know the doctor had to go. We stayed here all night so that no harm could come to you. Do you know why they laid their lives literally at the doctor's door at his feet? Not because he shamed them, not because he made them feel guilty, but because it was the only appropriate response to his mercy. Listen, hear me this morning. We're the lepers in that story. We're the ones who are diseased and who have been made whole through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're the ones who are bound up and captive in chains and he has come to break the chains and set us free so we're no longer slaves to our own sin. We're the lepers in that story. And if you could get a hold of that, then there'd be no more pressure or guilt or legalism. Listen, if you got a hold of that, I mean, really what got a hold of it, what Christ has done for you, then the only normal response would be to lay your life on the altar of God and say, God, not because I feel guilty, but out of gratitude for your mercy, my life is yours. We're the lepers in that story. People gain an understanding that would radically transform that. The verse 1 teaches. Let me challenge you a little bit this morning. Do you realize that when we study the Scriptures, we're not trying to master a curriculum? Do you understand that? We're not up here today trying to master a curriculum. You know what we're doing? We, we teach the Word of God. We're holding up a mirror to be gazed into. We're holding up a mirror to be gazed into. And as you look into the mirror of God, if there are areas of your life that are yet to be placed on God's altar and totally surrender, then either A, you don't have an appreciation for all that God has done for you, or B, you, re- you forgot where God saved you from and your excitement has diminished to the point where you're no longer motivated to be surrendered. We are those lepers. One translation of this verse says this, it's my reasonable service. Uh, Some translations have worded this way, it's our reasonable act of worship. The word worship in the Greek refers to the service of the priests in the temple and their daily activities were described as worship. They didn't, listen, do you get that? They didn't stop in the temple so they could worship God. Their day-to-day activities, they described those as worship. They said, because everything we do, we're doing it for the glory of God. And so that word there, he says, listen, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, when you understand all that God's done for you, when you understand that He found you, you didn't find Him. God found you. He sought you. No one seeks after God. And then He saved you by His grace. He didn't do anything. And then He transforms you in the image of Jesus Christ. And when you understand all of those things, your reasonable act of service, your logical response in the Greek, the only reasonable logical response is to lay down your life at His doorstep, not out of guilt or out of shame or out of legalism, but out of a response of His mercy towards you. Folks, can I tell you this morning that if you got a hold of that, 
there'd be a waiting list to work in the nursery. Amen. After all that He's done for me, chapters 1 through 11, it's the least I can do for Him. Chapter 12, verse 1. It's my reasonable, it's the only logical response. And so first off, we understand the motive is not guilt, and it's not legalism, it's not shame. It's to understand it's the mercy of God that motivates us to live differently as a response to that. What's the second thing that's required here this morning? second thing is simply this. So if I'm going to surrender my life, one, I've got to understand the motive. It's got to be a response to mercy. Okay? You, you know something about guilt? It's just a little free. I just thought about this. All right, you're welcome. You know the thing about guilt? Guilt's a great motivator in the short term. Yeah, I found that I'm preaching. Listen, I've preached some guilty sermons. I confess it. You know how long that lasts? About to the parking lot. But if I could get a hold of the mercy of God in my life, I no longer have to guilt anyone doing anything because they are overwhelmed by the mercy of God. So when I understand the foundation, therefore, therefore what? Therefore, your only reasonable act of service, therefore, in light of all that God's done for you, in light of where God found you, how He saved you, how He's changing you by His grace, therefore, it's your reasonable act of service to lay down your life on His altar. But then also the second thing that's required practically in that, that act of surrender, one's the motive, two is this. We understand that it also requires an act of the will. It requires an intentional act of the will. If you really want to grow and change, listen, it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by sitting in a room on a certain day of the week at a certain time of the day. It doesn't happen by just dragging your kids and hopefully they'll change. Listen, it is an active process where I'm engaging, where God is changing me, but I'm actively involved in that process. Now, why do I say that? Because here's my fear. Like for a long time, the church, like the evangelical church, the Baptist church, listen, we were a little bit legalistic. Can we just be honest about that? Like there were periods of time, if you go back and some of you sat under those, that preaching, there was a little bit of legalism going on. And as a response to that, the pendulum has swung too far the other way where everything is about grace. And if you have any standards, any expectations, any call to holiness, it's legalism. And so all the right. Can I tell you this? The middle is where God wants us, where, yes, every victory we have is because of his grace. But God expects us to be involved in a process where he is changing us. You understand that? That we're involved in that process. Because here's something in this hyper-grace culture we live in, in our church culture. Here's something we've forgotten about grace. Grace, by its very nature, is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Do you understand the difference? Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. And so, yes, God has changed me. God is growing. But God is inviting me to be a part of that process. And that's where spiritual disciplines come into play. And God, God changes me by His grace, but He uses the Word and Scripture memory and meditation and prayer and silence and solitude and fasting and all of those kinds of things. It just doesn't happen by accident. You just show up because of God's grace, I'm going to be radically changed. Now, let me prove it to you. That some people think I'm going to give my life to Christ and I'm going to show up in a room at a certain hour and I'm going to be totally changed. Let me just prove that really quick. That's not how it works. How many of you have ever met someone who was harsh, and critical and abrasive and greedy and all of those things and unsaved. And they gave their life to Christ. I mean, they really got saved. And now they're saved and harsh and abrasive and greedy and critical. And they're right. Like, do, do not, no, listen, you know why that happens? Some of them are generally saved, some are not. It's because they just thought I'm going to receive Christ and I'm going to sit back passively. And the grace of God is going to change me apart from my 
process involved in this. I don't have to do anything except show up and God will change me. Listen, look at verse 1. What's he say? I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Again, he's talking to Christians. By the mercies of God, there, there's the motive. It's God's mercy. It's not legalism. It's not guilt. By the mercies of God, that you, here it is, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The word present there is a verb, and I don't tell you that to give you an English lesson. That's why I tell you that, because when we interpret Scripture, we interpret Scripture in the literal, grammatical, historical context here. And so the very tense of the word even has meaning. And so the word present means it's an action on my part. It's something I do. That yes, at the end of the day, the grace of God changed me, but God expects me to be disciplining myself and engaging those things that will produce the greatest change in hope inside of me. Present your bodies. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, is what Scripture says. Now, by the way, do we all not say this? Give your heart to God. Give your heart to God. That's not what the text says here, by the way. What's it say? Present your heart? What's it say? Present your bodies. Well, what does that mean? That means there's actually a, a work of an intentional disciplining myself for the purpose of godliness. That means I take my body and I make it sit down and get in the Word of God. I take my body and I draw away for prayer. Have you ever heard someone say this? I'm there with you in the Spirit. You know what that means? <laughs> Nothing. Because your spirit can only be where your body is. I've had people say that, Pastor, I'm not going to be there, but, but I'm with you in spirit and in my heart. You know what I say in my heart? Not out loud or Jesus and everybody can hear it. That's what I'm, right? Present your bodies. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I believe that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. It is an intentional process. Why is it? Listen, it's not, it's not a one, like I did that. Listen, it's an ongoing process. The word in the Greek uh, not, not means just a decision made at a point in time. It means it's an it's a overall inclusive decision where, yes, I do it, but I'm doing it on a daily basis. Now, now, why do you have to do that on a moment by moment daily basis? Why do you have to consistently present yourselves to the Lord as a, as a worthy, reasonable response? Because Warren Wiersbe had it right, a great Bible teacher. Here's what Warren Wiersbe said. He said it has to be a moment-by-moment -moment decision because the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. That's a good word. It keeps crawling off the altar. Listen how the message paraphrase reads it. Here's what it says. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as in offering moment by moment god i'm, I'm having this conversation and, and they just said something and offended me and so in the flesh i want to tell them what i think but god i'm going to choose to surrender my rights to your glory and so i'm going to respond in kindness i'm going to bless those who persecute me i'm going to love my enemies that, that, that's not what i want to do but i wanted that why because in my day-to-day -day life it's my reasonable service and that's hard to do is it not our littlest one, a couple weeks ago, we learned that it's, it's, an act of mature, it's an act of spiritual maturity. Where you just say, you know what, in the flesh, this is what I want to do, and this is what I want to say, and this is what I want to spend my money on, this, you know, all those kinds of things. But you just say, God, but at the end of the day, I want to bring you glory. So, Lord, you tell me what to do. That's an act of spiritual maturity. Listen, even physically maturity, the older you get, you realize you just can't do whatever you want. A couple weeks ago, we're, our littlest one, we, we like to think of her as spirited. She's three years old and she is spirited. 
And so someone out, she's out in the ministry mall and, and one of our staff members, thank God it was a staff member because I can explain it away. One of our staff members, got her name is Josie. Josie, what are you doing? Got down her face. You know what Josie did? Pop! And we pulled her off to the side and talked to her. Why did you do that? She said, because I didn't want to talk to her. Have you not felt that way? Have you, have you not wanted to at times? Have you not wanted to say something? And Listen, but that moment by moment, placing myself on the altar of God as I grow in spiritual maturity, saying, this is what I want to do. But at the end of the day, more than what I want to do, I want the God to get glory from my life. Listen, I want to lash out in anger, but at the end of the day, I want God to get glory. I want to stay mad at my spouse, but at the end of the day, I want to give God glory. I want to do what I want to do with my money, but at the end of the day, I want God to get glory. I want to go in there and tell my employer what I really think, but at the end of the day, I want God to get glory. Present yourselves moment by moment. Now listen, this is incredibly important. That's what we mean when we say worship is a lifestyle, not a service. That moment by moment, I'm denying myself, placing myself and my desires and my rights and my demands on the altar of God. And instead, I'm going to do what gives God glory. That's called a lifestyle of worship. It's exactly what that looks like. For some of you, that's really scary. You see, that's a whole different way to live than just coming to church. That's scary. Let me comfort you with some insight I came across this week from a quote from a professor called uh, Ramesh Richard, Dallas Seminary. It's just, just phenomenal. Here's what he said. I often pray, Lord, feel free to make yourself famous at my expense. I've never prayed that. Feel free to make yourself famous at my expense. That's scary. Here's what he said. Fascinating. He said, I pray that way because of a radical confidence in God's goodness that he will never misuse what I place in his hands, including my life. Did you get that? I pray that way because of a radical confidence in God's goodness that he will never misuse whatever I place in his hands. I don't know. I know we don't like the word doctrine in church. But can you imagine if you got a hold of that doctrine and let it play out in every facet of your life, how radically different your life would be? That whatever it is, listen, whatever area of my life that I'm holding on to, I don't want God to have say so in it. If I just place it in his hands with a full confidence, knowing he will never misuse what I place in his hands and walk away. What are some areas that are hard to surrender in? We can understand this truth practically, but if you don't intersect with it personally this morning, you've wasted your time here today. So let's get personal. Does that sound fun? Let's get personal with this practical truth. This is just my experience. Here are some areas that are difficult to surrender. Money. Money. Like there are so many folks who say, this is my spiritual life, and then this is my business life. And God, you don't have access to this part of my life. You know why that's true? Listen, and, and when I say that, you, you think that I'm talking about giving. Listen, that's a fast I'm talking about avoiding debt because if there's warnings in Scripture. I'm talking about the wisdom in Scripture of diversifying your assets. I'm talking about the wisdom in Scripture about saving, steady plotting leads to prosperity. I'm talking about avoiding hasty speculation. Why? Because Proverbs says hasty speculation leads to prosperity. I'm talking about the whole counsel of God's words that relates to money. 
And the reason you don't follow God's financial plan, not just for giving and generosity, but I mean the whole thing, is because this, is because you're not sure if you place that in His hands, if He'll misuse it. You all right out there? Hard to surrender. Hard to surrender. Your children. Your grandchildren. Can I, can I break some of your hearts this morning? Do you realize that your plan for your children's life may not be God's plan? And some parents just cannot fathom the thought that their child's life would turn out differently than what they want it to turn out as their parent. Listen, it may not be God's plan that your child ends up a professional athlete. Even though you're living as if that's true. It may not be God's plan that your child is the next most part. It may not be your plan that your child's the next Albert Einstein. It may not be your plan that your child takes over the family business. It may not be God's plan that your child chooses a career path. It may not be God's plan that your child marries a person. You know who you should want your child to marry? Whoever's living for the glory of God. And so it's hard to surrender those kids and say, Lord, they're yours. Whatever you want to do with their life. It's hard to surrender your right to get even. Hard to surrender your career. Hard to surrender your pride. So I just want to close with two, two questions this morning. The first question is this. What is it in your life that you have yet to lay on God's altar? Here's the second question. Will you place it there today? Finally stepping across the bridge with the full confidence knowing that whatever you place in His hands, He will never misuse. Would you pray with me this morning?